And I'm Tenery Taylor. In the late summer of 1945, a young soldier lay on an operating table, his heart sliced open. Above him, another young man, a surgeon, was engaged in a game of cat and mouse with a piece of shrapnel floating within the chamber of the soldier's heart. It would pulse into view and then get sucked back into the ventricle. Now, the surgeon needed to grab it and get the heart sewed back up within minutes. He'd failed before and had had to stitch up the heart with the shrapnel still inside. That This nail-biter of a medical drama opens the book The Matter of the Heart, A History of the Heart in Eleven Operations. The author, Thomas Morris, joins us now. Welcome to Constant Wonder. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, before we find out what happened to um, Leroy Rohrbach, the young soldier, I want to get a little more context. Um, In the aftermath of World War II, I I gather from your book that there wasn't a consensus of opinions about whether or not to remove shrapnel from wounded soldiers. Yeah, and in fact, that consensus um, had had 30 years already for surgeons to reach some sort of uh, point of view on. Um, There was a certain amount of heart surgery going on in the First World War um, and even a bit before that. Um, And during the First World War, there were, in fact, dozens of successful extractions of pieces of shrapnel from the hearts of soldiers. Um, But it was often a delicate decision as to whether it was worthwhile doing it. And one of the key things that was happening in the Second World War when um, there was by then a a certain body of knowledge about how to get foreign objects out, out of the heart, um, surgeons like Dwight Hart, Hart, Harkin, the surgeon you just mentioned, mm-hmm. um, were a- aware that sometimes it was better just to leave it in situ. I mean, it is quite possible for a piece of metal to remain inside the heart, either embedded in the walls of the, of the ventricles or actually inside the cardiac chambers without doing uh, a great deal of harm. I, any Any idea of how... The veterans of of these wars felt about that, or I mean, I'm. It sounds like it's something that is still, you know, grappled with today. Maybe I, if I were a veteran, I would not want a piece of shrapnel in me, especially if it were in my bloodstream or anywhere it could move around. No, it's a very reasonable um, fear, um, and the the consideration I think that was making surgeons reluctant to take it out, and still would today in some cases is if it's going to cause more danger to your patient by operating than by leaving them untouched. Um, So that was a calculation that had to be made. But um, an interesting consideration that was um, often gone into here, and Dwight Harkin in particular, um, was that there's this phenomenon which was known then as cardiac anxiety. And that was soldiers who had been shot um, and had a piece of shrapnel or a bullet fragment or whatever lodged uh, in or near the heart and the anxiety caused by the knowledge that this, this foreign body was in, the, in inside their tissue um, was causing them such mental anguish that it was better to operate, even if that represented a risk to their future health. I think I would have fallen into that category. I have, I have total sympathy for that situation. Um, so tell me a little bit more about how Leroy Rohrbach was injured. Um, well, he had been shot um, during the invasion of France in uh, 1944, uh, so in the aftermath of D-Day. And um, he was airlifted back to uh, England. And it's important to say here that uh, the Americans had set up a massive field hospital in Gloucestershire, that's in the west of England. Mm. Um, And they realized that when D-Day happened, the invasion of northern France, they were going to be having to deal with very large numbers of casualties and they would need a dedicated hospital to to deal with that. And they were set up with different specialties in mind. And the one that was set up in Gloucestershire was specifically for chest injuries. Uh, So predominantly um, thoracic, so lung and heart injuries. Mm -hmm. And... Dwight Harkin was a surgeon in his early 30s. He had grown up in rural Iowa and he had, as it happened, studied in London uh, with the leading thoracic surgeon there, a man called Arthur Tudor Edwards. Uh, So he knew Britain. He had had training with the best thoracic surgeon possibly in Europe. And so he was ideally placed when they set up this field hospital to run it. And so Leroy Rohrbach, having been injured, 
uh, was flown back to Gloucestershire, as many of his um, comrades were. Um, and Harkin actually operated on him three on three separate occasions. Um, he had a, a bullet fragment lodged um, in the wall of one of the ventricles of his heart. And it was quite, in fact, it was inside the cardiac chambers. And Harkin found it very difficult to extract it. This is an era when it wasn't possible to stop the heart and attach the body to a heart-lung machine. They had to do it with a beating heart. And he tried once and failed. He gave it a second attempt. And then several months later, um, he made the third and successful attempt to remove this bit of metal from inside his heart. And so was it just a simple success? Because I, I've, <laughs> I have read there's a little, he was in such a rush um, that that his glove got attached to the heart. I, I explain what happened there in that last attempt which, in which he was able to extract the shrapnel, but uh, it wasn't quite smooth sailing. Well, at this date, if you were removing a bullet from somebody's heart, because there was no means of supporting the circulation while you were operating, you didn't have the luxury of doing it at any leisure. So it had to be a very quick operation. And that meant, first of all, localizing the piece of metal within the heart. That means by simply feeling it with your finger as a surgeon, uh, pressing it to uh, a point at the surface of the heart where you could uh, immobilize it with basically between finger and thumb through the wall of the heart make an incision, then quickly whip it out with a pair of forceps and then sew up the ventricle. Um, the pressures inside the heart, uh, the blood pressure is very high. So if you make even a very small incision into the ventricle, you get this very large volume of blood coming out at very high pressure. So you need to do this as quickly as possible. And the reason the operation went wrong the first couple of times was that just at the wrong moment, the heart would contract and the bit of metal would get sucked back into the chamber and he'd lose it. Um, so on this third occasion, he made a small incision into the ventricle. He managed to uh, grab this piece of metal with his forceps, pull it out, um, and then fiercely had to um, sew up the incision he'd made. And it was as he was doing that, he had to do it in such speed that he managed to sew his rubber glove to the surface of the heart. Mm. So, <laughs> so there's this frantic operation to kind of unattach his, the finger of his glove and uh, so they can close up the patient and, and let him go and recover. Wow. Oh, well done. <laughs> After all that. Well, I think, I think there's, there's one other important thing to say about these operations as well, which is kind of the key factor here. These operations were all performed inside a concert hut, which is basically a prefabricated hut made of um, corrugated iron mm -hmm. with a brick floor. So this was, you know, uh, this was this was proper field surgery in a field hospital. I mean, little better than operating inside a tent. Right. Um, the only heating was a, a sort of wood stove at one end. Um, and about five years ago, I went down to Gloucestershire. I was curious to see where this had all happened. And it's a wood now. There are trees that have grown up in the last 30 years or so. Um, and there's only a couple of these huts still standing. There are about two or three hundred of them back in 1944. And it's a tiny space. I mean, if you stand upright in the middle of it, you can touch the ceiling with your hand. Um, so he really was doing this in very little more than a tin shack. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, um, all of that aside, uh, operating in a field hospital, hospital, even in the most ideal circumstance of a very pristine, clean, sanitized operating room, I, I myself, I think, am, am much too anxiety prone to uh, think ever to ever have, you know, maybe even considered being a, a heart surgeon. And and I'm wondering, having spent time researching um all of these various surgeons and and um, scientists who advanced uh, heart medicine, did you find a common thread in their personality? Um, you know that you, if you met someone, you would say, "Oh, that person would make a great heart surgeon." Yes, but I think the the personality type I think has changed quite a lot over the last seventy or eighty years. Oh, explain because that. Because in the well, in the very early years um, of heart surgery there were um, very few patients who survived, to put it bluntly. They, the surgeons were uh, in a discipline where the patients they were operating on had close to zero chance of survival um, before surgery, if, if nothing was done. And when they were trying these new procedures for the first time, 
they also had a very, very high chance of dying. And there was something, um, I think, ice cold in the heart of some of these early pioneers. They had to be absolutely ruthless. Hmm. Now, that's that's not to say that they didn't care about their patients, because they certainly did. What they wanted to do was save hundreds of lives, thousands of lives further down the road. Um, there's one particular case, a surgeon called Robert Gross, who invented a new procedure. And when he first performed it in the late 40s, early 50s, I think eight of his first nine patients died. And it takes an extraordinary, I think, personality type to think, is this, this is really worthwhile persisting with something I've tried and failed repeatedly. Um, uh, one of the great pioneers was a man called John Gibbon, who invented the uh, heart-lung machine, the device that makes it possible to perform open-heart surgery. He spent almost 20 years developing it, starting in the 1930s. He performed his, he's performed his first operation using it uh, in 1953, and he only operated with it three times. The first was a success, uh, an absolute triumph. Um, uh, he used it to repair a congenital malformation in the heart of uh, a teenage girl but then his next two patients died and he gave up he never performed mm. open heart surgery again because he just didn't have it in him mm -hmm. to persist in that way um i mean so so there is that sort of degree of ruthlessness which was necessary in the pioneers um just because it was necessary to to have that <laughs> trait in order to succeed uh, i would say more recently um there's a certain degree of well certainly uh, fearlessness um, but also uh, an analytical brain. And a recurring thread I came across was uh, people who loved uh, sort of engineering tasks, doing things with their hands, um, wanting to know how things worked. So a mechanic of the body, though. Uh, yes. And, and in fact, some of some of the great surgeons have been kind of thought of themselves explicitly as, as mechanics. I mean, the, the, the obvious parallel is with plumbers. And um, <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a nice line I saw in a, a surgical paper written some 40 years ago where a surgeon was explaining some new technique and he concluded the sentence and the rest is just plumbing. <laughs> which I rather like and a lot of what they do is is you know not just plumbing but a lot of what they do is is plumbing it's about um, attaching blood vessels to different mm -hmm. blood vessels in such a way as to bypass a blockage or to uh, make blood flow in, in unexpected ways right right that brings to mind um, the story of Eileen Saxon. You talk about rerouting um, arteries and, and making blood flow in ways where it didn't before. Will you tell us? Um, I, I want to know the story of Eileen Saxon, what she was suffering from. And then I want to talk about how it was actually also a team effort. Sure. Well, um, Eileen Saxon was um, a young patient who was suffering from a condition known as Tetralogy of Fallow. Now, this is a congenital disorder. It's called a tetralogy because it's got four, four separate components to it. But it's a rather um, complex malformation of the heart and the vessels around the heart. And it's also known as blue baby syndrome, or it used to be known as blue baby syndrome, mm. um, because it causes this very characteristic, uh, characteristic blue coloration of the skin. Um, and the reason for that is that the blood is not being properly oxygenated. Um, there's normally a sort of beautiful double circuit between the heart, the lungs, and the rest of the body. And in tetralogy, uh, the blood isn't oxygenated fully. Um, so you get this deoxygenated blue color um, to the skin, which is very characteristic. And uh, in the 1940s, a surgeon called uh, Blaylock, Albert Blaylock in Baltimore, pioneered the treatment of this condition. Um, I mean, shall I tell you about his the team that you alluded to? There right, right because I think, you know, it's such a complicated thing to operate on the heart. And sometimes um, some of these stories are inspirational because there were people be behind the scenes who um, maybe weren't heart surgeons, but they were absolutely key to the success of these operations. Uh, yes, exactly. And, and a lot of these um, heart operations are a mixture of technique and concept. And in this case, it was really the concept that was the important element. Um, and the driver behind that was an amazing woman called Helen Tausig, who was a pediatric cardiologist, one of the really important figures of American medicine in the last hundred years. Um, and she was a pioneer in so many different ways. Um, she was very profoundly deaf. 
Um, she was a woman in uh, in the medical world at a time when there were very few women in senior positions. Mm. Um, and she came up with this idea for alleviating the symptoms of fallow's uh, tetralogy. And, and it's important, important to say this is not a curative operation. It's one that was palliate, palliating the symptoms. It was, it was improving the lives of the patient rather than curing them. Mm -hmm. And her idea was essentially uh, to reroute the blood back towards the lungs, to give, them, to give the blood a sort of second chance of being oxygenated before it was distributed to the rest of the body. Um, and she came up with a sort of basic concept. Um, and that was developed by um, a man called Vivian Thomas. And again, this is um, a, a, an amazing figure who um, was also a pioneer. He was a black technician. Um, he had always wanted to be a doctor, but for various reasons that never came to pass. Um, and he worked loyally as Blaylock's um, technician, lab technician, um, surgical assistant um, for many years. And it was really him who drove the development of this operation and perfected it. Uh, he performed lots of experimental operations on dogs in the in the laboratory, and then he taught it to Blaylock. And when Blaylock came to first perform it in um, in surgery, um, Vivian Thomas was standing on a block behind him, telling him what to do, saying, mm. uh, "No, that's not quite the right place, the incision, and I think you should maybe cut the vessel a bit higher." Um, and this um, operation, which became known as the Blue Baby operation. It took place the first time in 1944, and it was, in some respects, the beginning of heart surgery. Um, it was a revolution, and hundreds and hundreds of young patients went to Baltimore to Johns Hopkins to be operated on by Blaylock and his team. I, I just I want you to talk a little bit about what made it so risky. I mean, if you're <laughs> you're taking you're rerouting an artery. Um, I mean, is is are there risks besides just maybe hemorrhaging or I mean, how long does it take even to to restitch it somewhere else? It just seems like so many things could go wrong before you can get it where you want it to be. Yeah, blood vessel surgery uh, is inherently terrifying, isn't it? Um, the techniques were developed actually a very long time ago in the first decade of the 20th century by um, a French surgeon called Alexis Carroll. Um, who moved to New York um, around the turn of the century and um, won a Nobel Prize for his work. Um, but when Blaylock and Thomas and others were doing this work in the 1940s, it was incredibly specialised because they were, they were operating on um, not quite um, neonates, not, not very tiny babies, but still very small children. And the blood vessels are so small that they didn't have equipment that was small enough for it. Mm. So they're having to adapt um, catheters from um, urological <laughs> procedures to use on a on a child, um, and uh, all the needles were too big, all the forceps were too big, and it wasn't until later that that the surgical um, equipment manufacturers caught up with these developments and were able to make instruments that that were more suitable. Um, but I, I've seen some of the surgeons working on these things, and and the diameter of the um, the arteries they're working with are sometimes uh, un almost unimaginably small. Mm. In the case of Eileen Saxon, the blood vessel that was uh, being sutured um, was about the diameter of a matchstick. So we're talking, you know, a couple of millimetres, mm -hmm. you know, what, whatever, an eighth of an inch, that sort of thing. Thomas Morris is the author of The Matter of the Heart, A History of the Heart in 11 Operations. In just one minute here on Constant Wonder, we'll travel back into the operating room for the first human heart transplant. Welcome back to Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. We're visiting with Thomas Morris. He's the author of The Matter of the Heart, A History of the Heart in Eleven Operations. Now, in your book, you write that the heart is not merely a pump, but a pump controlled by electricity. Uh, it, that just kind of boggles my mind. How can that be? Electricity naturally occurring in our bodies. Yes, well, uh, as it does throughout our bodies, indeed, in the brain, in uh, the central nervous system, it's kind of natural to think of the heart as a, mu a muscular pump, but it's also got its its own internal pacemaker, uh, known literally as a pacemaker, um, and with a very complex conduction system, which distributes um, this natural, um, I, I like to compare it to like a metronome ticking away. And we do have um, a natural metronome in the sinoatrial node, which is this little bundle of nerve fibers. Um, and from there, 
Um, there are conduction pathways which take those electrical signals to the various different parts of the heart um, so that a, a, um, an electrical wave propagates um, rhythmically through it and causes the muscle to contract. Um, and, and that's the, the electrical impulse is what you will be familiar from an EKG trace. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's what it is. And I want to talk about the early use of the defibrillator in this um, process when when the process naturally goes wrong. And I guess we have to go all the way back to 1937. Yes, um, there's there's a really tangled history to the the defibrillator. So you can take it back even as far as the 18th century. There are a couple of um, Hmm. interesting anecdotes of um, the era when people were getting really interested in, in electricity for the first time and applying it to medicine. Um, there were a couple of attempts to resuscitate people who had uh, fallen unconscious or had falls. And there's one really intriguing description of uh, an amateur scientist uh, who had an electrical generating machine, which was capable of generating quite large voltages, um, going to treat a girl who'd fallen out of a window and who had stopped breathing. And um, in this story, which is actually um, recorded by Wesley, the founder of, of Methodism, Mm -hmm. Um, he passed a current through her chest and she started breathing again. So it is kind of possible to interpret that as possibly being the first defibrillation on record. Okay. Uh (laughs) But there there, there are also reasons for doubting it. But yes, um, in fact, this is one of those stories of missed opportunities. There there were various occasions when people came very close to understanding the nature of um, the way the heart works electrically and the idea of, of fibrillation. Um, and just to explain very briefly what fibrillation is and what a defibrillator does, normally I, I just describe the, that wave, that electrical wave, which propagates from the natural pacemaker inside the heart mm-hmm. uh, in, uh, to, to all the, the muscles to make it to make the heart beat, to make it contract. Um, and sometimes um, the heart can get into a state known as fibrillation, where instead of beating in that nice, organized, rhythmic way, uh, it quivers. Uh, kind of uncontrollably. That's known as defibrillation. That's uh, right. That's known as fibrillation. And in order to get it out of that, um, a powerful electric shock can just kind of reset the muscle fibers um, and then let the pacemaker, the natural pacemaker, establish, reestablish its own rhythm. Um, and in the 1890s, some researchers in Switzerland actually uh, first described fibrillation and understood approximately what it was, but it wasn't until 40 years later, um, funded actually by American power companies. Um, really? That, yeah. So, so the impetus for this research is quite interesting, which was that in the, um, as power workers, the big power companies were building these massive transmission networks across the country and, you know, stringing these pylons all across the Midwest, um, a lot of their workers were dying from shocks. And so, um, the power companies funded research to look into what was happening, how they were dying and how these deaths could be prevented. And out of that work um, came the understanding that uh, fibrillation, um, that death by electric shock was caused by the heart lapsing into this state of fibrillation mm-hmm. and that it was possible to reverse that mm. uh, by defibrillating it. That is to say, applying an electric shock to the heart. And out of that research came the device we know as the defibrillator uh, in the 1930s, uh, which was actually um, working quite well experimentally in the 1930s, um, thanks to the work of a man called Wilhelm Kuhoven. Um, but it wasn't until the 1940s when a surgeon called Claude Beck introduced it into the operating room for the very first time. Um, he'd been trying to convince colleagues of this device's use for, since before the war. Um, but it was only in the late 40s when he was uh, operating on a teenage boy who had a condition called pex, uh, pectus excavatum, which is a kind of malformation of the chest wall. And as they were sewing up the incision, his heart stopped. And um, Claude Beck restarted it using his, essentially, experimental defibrillator. And that is the first survival on record uh, using a defibrillator. Hmm. But it wasn't quite it wasn't quite so easy. I mean, he was actually in there massaging his heart, right, as as part of this process. So it wasn't just a matter of oh, apply some electricity, get it going again. Exactly. It was uh, it was not what you 
I mean, it was much worse, in fact, than you'll see on a medical drama today. Um, it, they didn't use a defibrillator as the first recourse. They started off by um, manual massage, which is this, I mean, it sounds deeply unpleasant if you're a layperson like me, but um, mm. it involved opening his chest and then um, gripping, holding the heart in, his, in the surgeon's hands and then rhythmically um, compressing it. Um, I, I compare it to kind of, if you imagine squeezing a tennis ball once a second, mm. and he did that for 45 minutes. Wow. Um, so he did that uh, for some time. And I think I, I can't remember off the top of my head whether he uh, was defibrillating kind of periodically but, or, or whether he eventually went to defibrillation. But it was the electric shock applied through two paddles to the side of the heart, uh, which eventually brought back a heartbeat. Wow. Fearless. I, I think that adjective that you used before, fearless, is is so appropriate. A, I just say there's a, there's a wonderful film which Claude Beck made um, some years later uh, where he assembled 12 of his former patients and he called them the choir of the dead. They're arranged on screen in this film like a choir mm. and he talks to them in turn and the last person he speaks to is the boy who survived that operation, the defibrillation in 1947. And he, and he says you would he says you were dead and you're the first one on record who lived. Mm. Mm. That, that is so inspiring. Is that? Can you even find that on YouTube or? Uh, yeah, you you will find it if uh, yeah it, you can find it if you Google. I think the Choir of the Dead. Oh, fabulous! Um, I'd like to move now uh, finally to heart transplants, um, which <laughs> talk about fearless. I think this moves to the level of audacious. Um, taking an organ from one person and putting it into another person's body. I'm just curious though because I'm sure there were you know brilliant minds who had contemplated this um, long before it was done. I, ju I just wonder, do we have any record of that, of, of people, um, doctors, you know, scientists, I don't know, maybe even philosophers contemplating if you could or whether you should move a heart from one person to another? Well, the earliest reference I'm aware of is actually 19th century um, in the era uh, in, the, in the late 19th century when um, vivisectionists um, started becoming the focus of uh, kind of news reports and also campaigning. Um, so vivisection was a, a big deal in the second half of the 19th century. Uh, people like H.G. Wells wrote about it. It became um, well-known, it was in the sort of public mind. And there's a short story from about 1900, which was originally published in a, an L.A. newspaper, actually. Um, and it's called, I think, The Heart of a Monkey. And it actually, imagine, it actually imagines a, a trans-species heart transplant from a gorilla to a man. Um, you call this a xenotransplant today because it's from a different species. Mm. Um, and in the short story, um, the man takes on the, the qualities of the gorilla and start sort of climbing curtains and eating bananas. Um, <laughs> but but um, I don't think it was really seriously contemplated um, as an option, the idea of transplanting a heart, until uh, Alexis Carroll came along. Um, I mentioned him earlier, who, the, the extraordinary person who developed the, the um, technique still used today in vascular surgery. Um, but he um, did a lot of experiments with a collaborator um, on the transplantation of organs. Um, he transplanted uh, various organs, including, um, uh, including hearts, although they were not, um, they were not being transplanted um, as a swap. They were kind of working as adjunct organs in, in other uh, bodies. So he would do, for instance, um, a kidney transplant would, uh, would take place. He'd take a kidney out of one dog and then suture it into the neck of another. Um, so he's not trying to replace an organ. He's interested to see whether a kidney taken from one animal will work in another one's body. Um, mm. But I think as soon as um, um, these experiments took place, they realized that they were dealing with a really um, enormous problem, which was rejection, um, which is essentially the immune response of the, um, the, 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 the host's body to the transplanted organ. Mm -hmm. um, and it was not until 50 years later um, that doctors really started to understand um, the nature of the Im immune response and how it could be circumvented. Well, I want to talk about that first um, heart transplant with Christian Bernard. And I'd like you to set the scene um, because it, it's really kind of breathtaking, the interplay 
between the donor and the recipient here. It's um, I mean, you couldn't even write this script. No, I mean, the circumstances of the of the transplant, the transplant itself are, are pretty extraordinary. Um, so it's it sometimes said that there was a race to do to transplant the first heart. I'm not sure that's quite true, but it's certainly the case that at least three teams were on the brink of being ready to transplant a heart in uh, the late in 1967 when this one took place. Um, so there was there were also um, two surgeons in the States who were who were nearly ready to do this operation. But it was um, the South African surgeon, Christian Barnard, who got there first. Uh, and he had been preparing actually only for two or three years. Um, he'd done a couple of um, uh, kidney transplants, including a very successful uh, kidney transplant on a patient who lived for, I think, 20 years after the operation. But his first operation in 1967 was a patient called Louis Wachanski, um, who was a retired um, grocer. And um, he was in terminal heart failure. Um, there was really nothing that medicine could do for him at this point. Um, and there's no question that if he had not volunteered to undergo this operation, he would have died within a few months. Um, and the transplant um, organ um, was taken from um, the body of a, an 18 year old girl who had died in a car crash. Um, there's this very strange coincidence that um, the the wife of the patient, Louis Wischgantz's wife, um, was returning home from having visited him in hospital on the day of the operation. Uh, and she drove past the scene of a crash. And unknown to her, um, a young woman had died in that crash. And that young woman's heart would end up in her husband's body mm. later that day. Mm. That's incredible. And so how did the operation go? Was it a success? The operation was, in some ways, it was two operations because they had the donor in one operating room and then the patient, the recipient of the new organ in the, in the adjacent room. And Christian Barnard was in charge of the implantation, the transplant operation, and his brother Marius was in the next door theatre um, removing the heart from uh, the donor. Um, and it was a complex operation, but actually... One thing that is kind of counterintuitive about transplant surgery is that it's the it's not the technicalities of the operation that are so complicated. Uh, the difficult bit is keeping the patient alive afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the operation itself went very smoothly um, and it was the recovery phase, which was so much more difficult. Um, they did have drugs to dampen down the immune response to prevent rejection of the new organ. Um, but what they couldn't do was um, control infection. Um, just to explain what happens, the, the recipient in a transplant operation like that is going to be given immunosuppressant drugs, and that is to prevent an immune response to the donor organ they've been given. And the tricky balancing act that to this day surgeons and cardiologists have to uh, manage is that when you damp down the immune response, you also make the patient liable to infection. And sadly, that is exactly what happened to Louis Warshansky. He survived for three weeks, um, but he also developed quite a serious pseudomonas infection. That's a, um, a, a, that is a fungal infection. And uh, the doctors who had no precedent to guide them on this um, did exactly the wrong thing, um, because what they needed to do was give him a chance to fight the infection. Unfortunately, they thought that he was going through rejection. So they actually upped the immunosuppressant drugs rather than reducing them. Oh. So that sort of that compromised his mm -hmm. ability to fight the infection. Mm. There's another angle here. You tackle the idea in your in your book um, that maybe sometimes two hearts are better than one. Um, in fact, putting two hearts to work in tandem with each other. I, I had not heard of this ever, um, that this was even ever conceived of. Can you explain um, this concept? Yeah, this was another innovation pioneered by Christian, uh, Christian Barnard in South Africa. Um, and he came up with the idea that, uh, that it might actually be possible to uh, transplant a, um, a heart uh, without extracting, without resecting the first heart first. So you would end up with a patient with two hearts. Mm -hmm. um, and 
it could cause quite a lot of confusion for cardiology. For if, if one of these patients was, uh, say, taken ill suddenly and the paramedics had to come and see them, I guess um, mm-hmm. you would end up with a patient that literally had two heartbeats, two pulses. Mm. Um, in, in fact, the idea that particular idea was pioneered by um, Russian surgeons. Uh, there's a, a surgeon called Sergei Br- uh, Brunyenko from the in the 1940s was doing the same thing um, with dogs, uh, experimental surgery. And I don't know whether Christian Barnard had actually been aware of those experiments. Um, it sounds very strange, but um, it did actually work rather well in some of those patients. Um, and the concept has sort of survived. In fact, it does, I believe, still occasionally happen. Um, but the, the concept has a wider use as well um, in technologies um, known as uh, VADs, VADs, which are supplemental pumps, electric pumps, which can be implanted to assist rather than replace the heart. Sure. So that, that idea that um, you can sort of assist the organ rather than replace it has survived and actually what Barnard found in the 70s and what surgeons um, and cardiologists know now is that if you help the heart out, sometimes a diseased heart can recover quite considerably from the way it was before. Mm. Well, I don't know if uh, when you were researching this book, if you were ever able to actually see an open heart surgery. Um, but I, I'm just curious about the impact that all this research had on you. Um, did it maybe even affect your, I, and I, I'm just going out on a limb here, affect your spirituality? I mean, because when you, you kind of step back and you think about just the wonders of what people are doing when they are performing heart surgery, transplanting hearts, um, this concept of two hearts, I mean, it's really unbelievable. It is. And um, the, I've sometimes been asked, um, when I'm talking about this sort of stuff, if, you know, if I believe that the heart is the, you know, the, the location of the soul and all, all this sort of stuff, there's a, there's a lot of cultural and religious and whatever else freight attached to the heart, particularly True. more mm-hmm. than any other organ. Mm-hmm. And I'm afraid that the more I've seen and I've, I've seen open heart surgery, I've seen lots of different things happening to the heart. Um, the more I see, the more wonderful I think it is as an object and the less I think mystically about it. Um, I think personally that science is so fascinating and the human body and biology are so endlessly interesting and just wonderful um, and extraordinary that I I don't really want to attach any deeper sort of mystical significance to it because um, the scientific reality is is already pretty good. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for sharing all these stories with us today. And you have really given us a lot to wonder about. Thank you very much for having me. Thomas Morris is the author of The Matter of the Heart, A History of the Heart in 11 Operations. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. And I'm Marcus Smith. In just the past generation or two, advances in heart surgery really have been mind-blowing. But you don't even have to look back that far to find practical miracles in prenatal surgery. Spina bifida, one of the most feared in utero diagnoses, That's also being conquered by medical science in real time. We'll be back with more about that here on Constant Wonder. Stay with us. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Marcus Smith talking about medical miracles this hour, some advances in surgery that have made certain diagnoses of conditions that were once always fatal now rather survivable or uh, fairly routine. From heart surgery, we're going to turn now to prenatal surgery to a specific uh, story of of modern techniques for operating on babies in the womb to repair a, a common and devastating form of spina bifida. Operating in the womb before severe damage takes place has been shown to improve outcomes dramatically. The first patient to pioneer the surgery was Allie Mullen. She was herself a nurse, and she named her baby Emery Green Mullen after the two doctors who did the surgery. Tenery Taylor of our team here at Constant Wonder spoke with Dr. Stephen Emery and Dr. Stephanie Green, and here's part of the conversation. They get going with Dr. Emery noting that this new technique carries risks of its own. 
for the mom, the risk is that, think about it, we just made an incision in her, in her uterus. And if that scar ruptures, because remember the pregnancy, the uterus needs to continue to grow. If that scar ruptures, then that can be catastrophic for both mother and baby. So when you're choosing to perform the surgery on someone, you have to choose your candidate very carefully. So what, makes, ha- a, what makes a good candidate? Well, Allie. She, was, <laughs> she checked all the boxes. She Tell us. checked all the boxes. She was healthy. She was intelligent. She was educated. She's got great social services around her. Uh, she lived in Pittsburgh. You know, she doesn't live 100 miles away mm-hmm. um, where she'd have to sort of move to Pittsburgh uh, to, to uh, make this happen. Um, the baby was an excellent candidate. The lesion was at just the right spot where in utero closure made sense because we'd probably make a significant positive impact on the long-term neurologic outcome. All of those things uh, lined up in her favor. Dr. Green, I'm wondering, is there a time in the pregnancy, a stage during the pregnancy, when it's best to do this surgery because you can prevent the most damage? So I think that's somewhat an unanswered question. The study allowed anybody that had surgery between 19 and 26 weeks gestation. So it seems that earlier in the pregnancy, the fetus is too fragile, and later in the pregnancy, the uterus is too reactive. So uh, this is the ideal time, somewhere between 19 and 26 weeks, and most people aim towards the end of that time because then if the baby is delivered premature, mm-hmm. it's not extremely premature. And, and when you say the uterus is, is too, I just want to clarify something, is too reactive, that means that you could, you could um, put the woman into labor, right? Yes, that's what I mean. Okay, okay. So you don't want that happening because you want to keep the baby in there to continue growing. Right. Prematurity can create some of the same problems that spina bifida creates, Mm -hmm. like hydrocephalus plus lung damage, cerebral palsy. So we don't want to make the baby worse by having it delivered too soon. Dr. Green, what did um, this baby, Emery Green, what did she gain by having this surgery done in utero rather than waiting to be delivered in your estimation? She gained, I think she gained a lot of leg function. I expected her to have no movement below her knee based on the anatomic level of the defect. And she has almost completely normal movement in her legs. She's just a little bit weak in one movement in one foot. Everything else is normal. She also does not have hydrocephalus, which somewhere between 60 and 80% of children with, with spina bifida have. That's, she a, has that's no the swelling in the brain, right? The water on water. the brain, yes, that requires placement of a shunt to treat it. Uh, she doesn't have that either. And um, Dr. Emery, how did Allie deal? Were there any complications um, during the birth as a result of this uh, procedure? How did the rest of the pregnancy go? Oh, it went perfectly. We could see on ultrasound that the intracranial anatomy was normalizing over time. The baby grew normally. Everything was fine. And then at around 32 or 33 weeks of labor, she broke her water, which is typical. The average gestational age for delivery in the, in the trial that I mentioned was 34 weeks, and she got to 33. Uh, her care was optimized, so when the baby came, uh, she was in the, the optimum state. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Emery, how does it feel to know that baby Emery will will literally be running around in this world, uh, carrying your name as her legacy? It's just it's uh, it's it's beyond thrilling. It's beyond humbling. Um, it just it just shows the level of gratitude that um, that um, patients like Allie uh, display for us. You know, we've as she says, we we really impacted. Her not just her daughter, but her entire family. And as, as a, a measure of gratitude, uh, she named her, her uh, baby after us. Dr. Green, have you uh, seen the baby since uh, as she's been growing up at all? Oh, yes. I've seen the baby a lot. <laughs> she was transferred over to Children's a few days after birth. So um, I saw her every day while she was at Children's. And she's come in for, I think, three or four appointments since she was discharged from the hospital. So I've seen her quite a bit. And and is is she expected to walk and um, talk and have much normal function? She is. She may require a support for the bottom of one foot. And other than that, she should be able to walk normally. Um, I would expect normal speech 
um, normal personality. Dr. Emery, now this isn't the first time that this in utero surgery has been performed, but it's the first time it's been available or that it was done in the Pittsburgh area, right? That's right. So, so what was it like coordinating that kind of effort? <laughs> Herculean. <laughs> Herding cats. <laughs> Doctors are like that too, huh? Yeah. Um, well, well, so... So we have a um, we have a mature fetal therapy program at McGee. We do uh, th- this was our first open in utero surgery. We do lots of uh, fetal surgeries for other conditions. So all the infrastructure is there. All the people are there. All the tools are there. So it wasn't like we were starting from scratch. And in fact, uh, Dr. Green and I and the entire team uh, went to San Francisco UCSF, which is one of the centers of the Moms Trial. Uh, and learned how to do this uh, this procedure back in 2011. And then we waited for the perfect candidate, and uh, that perfect candidate was uh, was Allie. It took seven years to get that perfect candidate. <laughs> yeah. It it's a two-way street. You know, we had to choose Allie. We had to make sure she was an appropriate candidate for all the medical and social reasons. But she had to choose us, too. She was going to be the first. And And some people aren't willing to do that. Lot, well, Absolutely. lots of people before Allie were not willing to do that. Mm. Allie was, and that's what makes her so special. That's what makes her so brave. Because she knows that this service should be available in Western Pennsylvania. Someone needs to get it started, and she was willing to be that person. So I would like to walk through what a fetal surgery looks like, because it's really a new concept to me. I don't know anybody who's ever had one. And um, Dr. Emery... I do know that babies move, and they start moving when they're really little. And so how do you get a, and keep a baby in the right place to operate on it? Well, we have all sorts of tricks. <laughs> but uh, in this particular case, the mom is deeply anesthetized because we want the uterus to be com- deeply anesthetized as well so it doesn't contract. And when the mother is, at, is in that level of deep anesthesia, so is the fetus. So the baby lies still. We got So okay. So we got a still baby, and then Dr. Green, yeah. uh, talk us through how many incisions you have to make to get to where you want to be. Well, Dr. Emery had to make the incisions in the abdominal wall and in the uterus, and he had to position the baby so that the defect was visible through the opening in the uterus. Um, And then I used a microscope because it was a very small abnormality and a very small baby. And we um, did more closing than incising. We had to separate the side of the spinal cord from the skin. Those are fused in spina bifida. So we had to make a very precise uh, circular incision around the spinal cord to free it up. And then we had to close the spinal cord. Um, So we sew the outermost layer covering or the innermost layer covering the spinal cord called the pia. We sew that closed to uh, sort of tubularize it the way that it should be normally. Then we had to open the dura, the coverings of the spinal cord and the nerve roots that is fused to the surrounding muscle. We had to dissect that away from the muscle and then we had to close that over the spinal cord. And then we had to close the skin over those other two layers. Incredible. And you said you were using a microscope. I'm curious what the scale of, like, were we tucking centimeters? Are we tucking inches? Uh, the defect was about a centimeter long and half a centimeter wide. Oh, um, incredible. Dr. Emery could probably give you an accurate assessment of what the baby weighed at that time. Oh, geez, less than a pound. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay, so what happens um, if you're trying to do this? It sounds like the baby had all the parts that it needed. You talked about separating the dura from the tissue and and putting everything in it where it was supposed to be. What if, say, you'd gotten in there and there wasn't enough dura to wrap around the spinal cord like it was supposed to? Oh, uh, we use a synthetic patch that we use often in postnatal surgery for a variety of conditions. It's a synthetic collagen matrix, it's called. So it's made in a lab, and it's designed to have the native dural cells migrate into it over time. So three months from from the time you use it, that patch is made out of a person's own dura. Mm. 
I wonder, Dr. Emery, um, it sounds like you were kind of the mom's doctor here and you did the part that had to do with the mom's body. Um, how similar for the patient as a, as the mom is this to a C-section and recovering from a C-section? Oh, great question. Um, the, the anesthesia is very different. Um, the skin incision is obviously wider. Uh, in Allie's case, the placenta was on the anterior wall of her uterus, so we couldn't make an incision there. We had to actually deliver the uterus out of the abdomen and make the incision on the posterior wall of the uterus. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait, you, the whole uterus came out? Yeah. Wow. And, and, and is that the way you would have wanted it, or would you have wanted it to kind of stay in there? Well, for our first case, we probably would have. Been, we would have preferred a, a posterior placenta, but um, uh, anterior, anterior placenta is manageable. Okay, I'm a little squeamish, but I'm trying to visualize this. The uterus is sitting on top of the mom's belly Yeah. while you're doing all of this. and then... Yeah, I'm the same way. I have to close my eyes anytime I do one of these procedures. <laughs> oh, my God, you're kidding. <laughs> <laughs> all right, and then Dr. Green's got her microscope, and she's... Oh, working on this baby that weighs less than a pound. Okay, this yeah. is just incredible stuff. I take it back. It's more than a pound. I, I got my, my – uh, it's around a pound, just say that. Yeah, yeah, but still. <laughs> all right. Now, now you – and then you put it all back in, sew it all up. Um, and this is a question I have for you, Dr. Green, because you do a lot of these surgeries on babies who are already born. Yes. And – um, you would, I assume, be kind of monitoring the wound and making sure the stitches were okay. And and this is a case where you do this surgery, tuck the baby back in the womb, the womb back in the mom, and sew it all up. And then you don't see the incision or the scarring or the the wound or anything for a couple of months. Yes. So, so what did that look like compared to a surgery you would have done on a, a baby who had been born? I would have seen that wound every day for the first 10 days or so, then a week after that, then a month after that. So we were well behind the eight ball by the time she was born. But because the wound was bathed in amniotic fluid, it was completely healed when she was born. Dr. Stephen Emery is a fetal surgeon and director of the Center for Innovative Fetal Intervention at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, McGee Women's Hospital. Dr. Stephanie Green is a pediatric neurosurgeon and director of vascular and perinatal neurosurgery at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. And they spoke there with Tenery Taylor of our team here at Constant Wonder. Could California reduce the risk of wildfires by going bananas? A USC professor thinks so banana plants to buffer against wildfires. It's a wild sort of story, and we're going to bring it to you tomorrow here on the show. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.